Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Associate Professor at the University of the Basque Country, Inigo Mujica. Thanks for tuning in to episode 138 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So just for your, before we go any further, apologies for Inigo for absolutely butchering his surname in the introduction to the, the podcast when we actually had a chat the other night. So I've been cringing for the last 48 hours, but I haven't taken it out of the episode because I think it has to be genuine um, that I was uh, horrendously embarrassed about my uh, my pronunciation but we'll move on quickly from that so in this episode with Inigo which I really appreciate him giving up his time so I know he's a very very busy guy um, we discuss everything from uh, strength training for endurance athletes so looking at um, not only strength training but power training and plyometrics for runners uh, cyclists and swimmers we also look at the key qualities uh, of a sports scientist and that comes from uh, an editorial piece that Inigo put together um, which is fascinate, a fascinating short read which I'd encourage everyone to, uh, to check out and we also discussed the key qualities of coaches which is also involved in that editorial um, that Inigo put together. There are a lot of toys out there huh? and uh, not all of them are useful. My, my philosophy is to only use the minimum necessary that is shown to be effective. So if, if you have a tool that has proven to be effective, um, valid, that is to be measuring what it's supposed to be measuring uh, and the uh, signal to noise ratio has been measured and, and, and you know that you are uh, getting valuable data from, from that particular technology, then use it. So just before we get into the chat with Inigo, I just want to say a massive thanks, as always, to the sponsors of the Pacey Performance Podcast, who are Vald Performance, makers of the Nordboard and Groin Bar, and Fatigue Science, who are the makers of the Ready Band. So I'd encourage you both, uh, so encourage you to check them both out. Uh, at valdperformance.com and fatiguescience.com. So, hope you enjoy the chat with Inigo, and I will speak to you soon. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So, today I have the pleasure in speaking to Inigo Mahuka, Mahika uh, for the for the podcast today. So, did I did I absolutely kill that? Did yeah, I kill yeah. that? I did. I did. You you say it. You say it. Inigo Mujica. Perfect. That's better. So thank you very much for giving up your uh, evening to come and have a little chat. And I think that's probably broken the ice a little bit because, um, yeah, definitely broken the ice on that, on the absolute murdering of your name. So anyone that doesn't know who you are, do you just want to give us a little bit of a, a background on you and, uh, and what you're currently doing? Yes, uh, I am a sports physiologist. Uh, I have a couple of PhDs related with uh, elite sports performance. And I also have um, 
level three accreditations as a coach in swimming and triathlon. But basically, I consider myself uh, at the moment a freelance uh, sports physiologist, although I, I do some work um, as associate professor at the University of the Basque Country. Um, my position is in the Department of Physiology in, uh, in, in Bilbao. And I also do some master's degree lecturing in different universities in, in, in Barcelona, in Murcia, in Santiago de Chile, uh, Madrid, and Reykjavik in, in Iceland. So anyone that doesn't know where the Basque Country is, I know we've been um, having a little chat about this beforehand. Give us a little bit of a history, a very short history of the Basque Country. Well, it's a, a little part of uh, Spain and a little part of France. It's a, it's a beautiful part of the world that everybody should come and visit. Good. So when we were chatting beforehand about Athletic Bilbao, the football club, and I'm not quite sure how widely this is known, but only players from the Basque Country are uh, eligible to play for Athletic Bilbao, which, as we were saying before, is absolutely incredible. Um, and we were chatting about your previous role at the club. Do you just want to talk to us a little bit about, just very briefly, about what that role was at Athletic Bilbao? Yes, uh, for a few years uh, I worked uh, as an associate researcher for the Athletic Bilbao Foundation. Uh, then I went off to work as a sports physiologist at the Australian Institute of Sport for a couple of years in 2003-2004. And when I came back, I worked uh, for a year with Euskal Teleuskadi professional cycling team, which basically had the same philosophy as Athletic Bilbao, which means only riders uh, either born or develop in the Basque Country. After a year with Euskal Teleuskadi, I, I started working again at Athletic Bilbao this time uh, full-time and my role was uh, head of research and development at the academy level so what I was supposed to do is make sure that um, we integrated as much sports science as possible into the development programs of our players and I tried to optimize every aspect of uh, player development uh, since the players arrived in the club at the age of uh, nine, ten years old, and all the way to the uh, professional ranks. What makes what makes the Basque Country so special that that the that philosophy can take place with regards to the players only coming from that region? Uh, nothing really. It's just that uh, in the past every club used to take pride in uh, playing with local boys against uh, other cities' uh, local boys. And Athletic Bilbao has kept to this philosophy in spite of all this uh, commercialization of the game. And, you know, people in the Basque Country are proud of their, um, of their roots and their, and their background, and they want to stick to that philosophy. It's uh, as simple as that. Mm -hmm. Nice. So obviously the, the, the reason I wanted to get you on was to chat around, um, mainly around uh, endurance athletes. So one kind of obvious start point would just be to to ask you to touch on the, and I'd, how I'd worded it, is the, the benefits and barriers of strength training uh, for endurance athletes. Obviously the, the kind of benefits are more, I suppose, widely known and used um, 
in kind of 2017, but I'd just love to get the kind of a, a history of of this of strength training endurance athletes and, and where we are currently. Well, for many years, uh, the scientific evidence backing up the use of uh, strength training, strength and power training for uh, highly trained endurance athletes was not really there. You know, um, athletes who were already able to produce high levels of power in their chosen discipline uh, did not really benefit from ever-increasing levels of strength and power and some people wondered whether once you reach a certain level of uh, strength and power you would benefit more from spending more time in developing your technique and becoming better at your sport than spending uh, that same amount of time in the gym gaining additional strength and additional power and 15 years ago, we could not definitely state that strength training was beneficial for endurance performance in highly trained and elite athletes. But in the past uh, decade and a half, there has been new research emerging showing that all levels of uh, endurance athletes can benefit from from performing endurance, uh, sorry, from performing strength and power training uh, for their endurance performance. And basically what has changed is the type of uh, strength training that they perform in the gym and also the way they have assessed the, the benefits of this type of training. So you want to talk to, a little, talk to us a little bit about that and how, that, how that's been assessed and how that differs or has differed over time? Well, I think in the past, uh, people were trying to mimic uh, the, the requirements of the sport uh, too much. Uh, which means that uh, if you were uh, a runner doing, uh, let's say, 1500 meters or, or 5000 meters, the idea was that you should imitate in the gym the type of uh, strength requirement that you will have when you are running 5000 meters. And that meant uh, very low loads and many, many repetitions. But just in the, in, in the name of uh, training specificity, but going to the gym to do exactly the same thing that you are doing over and over in your endurance training doesn't make much sense. And I think uh, what has changed in the past few years is that um, coaches and, and athletes are trying to do something different in the gym uh, to what they usually do in their, in their strength training. So basically, the main difference between today's studies and, and, and the studies that were available 15 years ago or 20 years ago is that nowadays, endurance athletes are focusing on, on heavy strength, uh, high power and plyometrics although that's not the type of activity they will preferably perform when they when they do the competition in in their chosen sport mm -hmm. is there any particular athletes out there who are doing um this really really well in this integration of strength and power trained into their um into their running well, if, if, if you look at the, uh, at the research available, there are some, some really good studies already done in the, already done in the, in the late 90s and, and in the early 2000s. So um, those studies already showed that 
highly trained athletes who are doing this type of work were doing it uh, well and the performance benefits uh, were clear. Uh, we are speaking about uh, Scandinavian runners, we are speaking about um, uh, track cyclists uh, in a study done in New Zealand, uh, some Danish and Norwegian uh, road cyclists were doing this type of work and benefiting from it. So there, there is a wide range of, uh, of endurance athletes who have been benefiting from this type of, of exercise in the gym, including also swimmers, for example. Mm -hmm. is, it, is, it, um, is it not normal for, for guys out there to not be doing strength training now? Is it so common that it's weird if they don't? Uh, I don't think, uh, no, 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 I think there is still a lot of endurance athletes who are um, afraid of, uh, of doing uh, strength training in the gym, you know, they, I think they, they still fear uh, getting big and mm -hmm. having to carry that extra body mass uh, up the hill. But we now know that depending on the type of strength that you do, you can get the benefit of higher power production without the, uh, the negative effect of increasing your, your muscle mass or your, or, or your body mass. So you can, you can get stronger without necessarily getting bigger and heavier. So what are the, obviously the, the obvious ones like you just mentioned, what are the other barriers that you're, from your experience seeing uh, from endurance runners, why they're not adopting strength and power training? Well, besides that uh, fear of, of getting big, another another limitation is the lack of experience uh, at doing high-intensity uh, strength work and power work and plyometrics. So people are afraid of getting injured. So basically the, the, the main way around that is recommending to first learn the technique of every exercise that they plan to do in the in the gym or, or, or on the track uh, or anywhere where they perform their their strength and power training and once they they have a proper technique then they can increase the loads without fear you know you first you have to prepare your body to to carry out the um the proper work and once your body is prepared for that there is no reason uh, to fear uh, getting injured uh, the, quite the opposite you know uh, there is there is enough evidence showing that uh, strength training is the main exercise mode to prevent uh, sports related injuries in in endurance sports mm -hmm. so, so when it comes to the uh, periodization of, of strength training for, for these endurance athletes. What's, what does the research say is moving towards optimal for, the, for these guys? So rep, reps and sets and that kind of thing and, and maybe, specific, maybe certain exercises that are specifically beneficial for these guys? Well, the, the main thing is to, um, to use muscle groups and, uh, and exercises that somehow mimic the um, the the motions that you will have to go through during your your specific sport uh, but research has shown that uh, 8 to 12 weeks of uh, strength training with just two to two to three sessions per week and only four to six exercises um, doing a limited number of reps but using high intensity is, is an effective way 
of uh, getting strength and power gains. And that would be in the pre-competitive season. And then if you reduce to one session per week with very low volume but maintaining high intensity, you can maintain those gains for the entire duration of the competitive season. So you, you don't really need a, a very periodized approach to, uh, to strength training. As long as you progress through the pre-season in the, in the loads that you are using and the, the types of exercise that you are using, you're going to get some, uh, some benefits. Uh, for your performance, which you can then maintain with as little as one session per week. And that session uh, can be of low volume, but of course we need to maintain intensity. If we don't do that single session a week during the, uh, during the competitive season, uh, there is a, a very high risk of losing progressively those adaptations that we managed to, to get. Uh, in the uh, in the previous preparatory phase, for for endurance athletes, does that does that kind of lag time? Is that similar to other athletes, or is that lag time in endurance athletes shorter or longer? Where you, how you can keep them them qualities going without any training? Uh, I don't think there is uh, a big difference. Uh, there is uh, there is there is evidence showing also that uh, that strength athletes can maintain their strength gains for a long time doing a, a reduced strength training program. So in that sense, it would be it would be similar. Uh, the difference here is that endurance athletes who need to compete uh, repeatedly throughout the season, for example, uh, triathletes or or professional cyclists. Uh, they often have less time to dedicate to um, to developing strength. But at this point in time, when they are focusing on competition, not on increasing their uh, their strength and power levels, maintaining is enough. And we know that in order to maintain uh, a reduced training program, in fact, a very reduced training program, is enough to uh, to achieve that goal of maintaining the adaptations that were uh, previously obtained. Mm-hmm. So how does that? How does the things that you just mentioned there differ between uh, runners and and cyclists, for instance, or between runners and I mean runners and swimmers is a kind of an obvious one, but runners and cyclists with regards to the kind of specificity of the exercises chosen. Well, a, a couple of years ago, along with uh, my colleague and friend uh, Bent uh, Ronestad from from Norway, we published a a review of the literature in which we concluded that cyclists probably benefit from uh, heavy weight training with an emphasis on performing the concentric phase as fast as possible during the lift. And there would be no additional benefit from performing uh, high power or plyometric exercise. And that wouldn't be the case for runners. Runners will also benefit from from regular weight training uh, with a focus on performing the concentric phase as fast as possible, but they can get an extra benefit from additionally performing uh, high power and plyometric exercise. So in this case, in the case of the runners, they can benefit twice from adding one type of strength training to the other. Excellent. So one thing I'd like to uh, like to ask you about is 
is it a bit of a research, well, from what I'm seeing and, and hearing from, from people in team sports and moving away from the kind of individual athletes, is a bit of a resurgence in aerobic training for, for team sport athletes, whether that be in rugby or, or football. Would you mind just giving us a little bit of a, um, again, a bit of a history lesson and I suppose physiology lesson on the benefits of this type of training for this group? Uh, are we talking, sorry, about endurance training or strength training? Yeah, sorry, endurance training. Yeah. Yes, yes. Well, for many years there has been this uh, dichotomy between uh, between uh, purely technical and tactical work in football or more analytic type of work in which you try to develop the different qualities that are required uh, to perform in uh, in team sports. And, you know, some people have moved away from uh, fitness training in favor of doing everything with the ball and doing everything while actually playing the sport. Or, or in, if we're speaking about football, uh, doing everything during your football exercises. Um, I think uh, that's an extreme that is not beneficial for the fitness of the players. My philosophy has always been that uh, first you have to analyze the uh, requirements of the sport, the fitness requirements of the sport. And then you have to use the most useful and effective ways of training those particular requirements. Because if it was always about uh, specificity, all football players would have to do is play football games every single day. And that's not the best way to prepare for the requirements of the sport. And I think uh, football is a sport in which uh, aerobic requirements are important. There is clear evidence that has been around for, for three or four decades showing that when you have a high uh, onset of blood lactate accumulation, uh, your phosphagens are going to recover quicker. So that is clearly going to go in the benefit of performing repeated sprints uh, at a higher intensity for the athlete who has a higher um, lactic threshold. So I, I've always think I, I've always thought that if you have a high aerobic power and you have a high lactic threshold, you are going to have a higher ability to perform high-intensity exercise repeatedly. And that's one of the main requirements of most team sports, and football in particular. Mm -hmm. I mean, just, just again, thinking about my experience, probably 10 years ago in, in, professional, in professional football, there was, a, <clears throat> there was a, a trend from older coaches to go on kind of longer, slow runs, especially in pre-season. And then, like you say, we've come kind of full circle to be doing everything in in small sided games. But I think there's there's definitely a um, a shift, not going back to the kind of five mile, six mile runs that I used to do ten years ago. But people in football and rugby actually um, emphasizing the kind of um, what might be classed as aerobic training um, on the kind of sl slower runs, especially in preseason. But I'm just thinking from a coach's, like a technical coach's point of view, that's quite confusing that they're seeing the older coaches getting hammered for doing this kind of running. Then we've told everyone that now it should be doing small-sided games and now people are actually finding somewhere in the middle. 
that's why it is quite it can be quite confusing for technical coaches to mm-hmm. kind of find a find a medium do you, do you find that as well uh when I started doing this type of aerobic power uh, training at Athletic Bilbao, I, it took some time to convince not the technical coaches, even the uh, the fitness coaches, that they were not training everything uh, the best possible way, even when they thought they were uh, through small-sided games. I think there are things that cannot be trained properly with the ball. You can get some time of stimulus, but as I said before, you have to find the optimal ways or the most effective ways to train all the aspects that are uh, physiological requirements of the particular sport. And we know that there are better ways of training your aerobic power than by playing small-sided games, four against four, in a 20 by 20 uh, pitch area, you know. So I think if we spend some time uh, applying the most effective ways to train each particular requirement, there is still plenty of time to also develop the player's technical and tactical abilities. So if you were going to go into a, uh, a random sport, say lacrosse or something like that, what would be the process that you would go through to be able to define them key qualities before you then figured out how to train them key qualities? What would be the process that you would go through or have been through? Well, the first thing would be to do a time-motion analysis of the sport to determine the distances the uh, the players have to cover, the speeds at which uh, they have to move, uh, the number of high-intensity efforts, the number of sprints, etc. from a, a purely f- physical or fitness point of view. And then, of course, there is the uh, the tactical requirements and the and the technical requirements. But once you have somehow uh, cut the performance uh, of that sport in little pieces, then you have to look at the requirements and 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 look at the scientific literature to determine which are the proven ways of optimizing training for that for each particular requirement of the sport i don't think it's that complicated uh, first you have to assess the uh, the requirements of the sport uh, you have to determine the uh, the level of the player uh, at each point in time and then look at the uh, scientific literature to uh, to choose the most appropriate way of training each particular requirement so as always, just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Inigo. So I hope you're enjoying it so far. So I'm just going to use this short interlude to um, say massive thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So Fatigue Science offer a team platform for measuring sleep, um, sleep activity. So I know more and more teams are taking up the services of Fatigue Science, um, especially obviously in the US, um, but more and more in the UK. So I have my ready band on as we speak. Um, so the, the main difference with, uh, with Fatigue Science and the other kind of consumer-led uh, devices that are out there is that uh, there's obviously a team solution. So when guys and girls are entering a a locker room for instance or a changing room 
There is one central hub, which all data from the ready bands worn by the players actually um, creates a sync. So all the guys' uh, data syncs to that one central hub. So it'd be an iPad uh, or a laptop and that can then be viewed by coaches uh, in real time. So that's a real nice feature for anyone that has large squads and is looking at uh, implementing some sort of sleep tracker within their, within their team. So fatigue signs can be found at fatiguesigns.com and on Twitter at fatigue science. So we're just gonna get back into part two with Inigo. Thanks for listening um, and enjoy. So a little um, a little piece that you wrote, uh, I can't remember what it was actually, you might be able to, to tell me, um, on the, the, the kind of key, well, it was the, the article mentioned about the key qualities of a sports scientist, which listed lots of um, different kind of words to describe that. I'd just, I'd love you to expand on firstly why that was written and give us a bit of a summary of the key qualities you see um, are essential for a sports scientist? Hmm. Well, this is an editorial that I wrote uh, for the International Journal of Sports Physiology and Performance, of which um, I'm an associate editor, and I, I have been an associate editor since uh, since uh, David Pine and myself uh, put together the journal back in, in late 2005. Um, the idea was to... Um, to ask uh, elite coaches what they considered were the key qualities of athletes uh, who are able to win the what I call the big medals, that is the Olympic medals and the, uh, the World Championship medals. So I asked uh, a bunch of coaches from different sports to name four key qualities that they considered necessary to win big medals. Um, and those qualities were for athletes, for coaches, and for sports scientists. So I collected the, uh, the responses from 15 uh, elite coaches who had coached athletes who had won those big medals, and I summarized them in my, in my editorial. And well, a few of the things that, um, that uh, stand out in terms of key qualities of uh, sports scientists it's uh, basically that they need a, a solid educational background. Uh, you can't be a sports scientist if you don't have uh, an education as a, as a sports scientist. Uh, and I think you also need um, a passion for constant learning. Uh, you need communication skills because you need to communicate your your findings and your results and your recommendations, both to coaches and sometimes directly to athletes, depending on the type of relationship that you have with the coach and with the athletes. And you gotta be ready to contribute to a, to a team effort. Um, you know, as, as a sports scientist, you have to understand that it's not about you, it's not about um, your performance only as a, as a sports scientist or, or it's about your contribution to a team effort that should end up helping an athlete um, succeed in their in their chosen in their chosen sport. So, do you got the responses just from the coaches or the athletes themselves? No, I only ask uh, elite coaches. How do you think that would differ if you ask the athlete? Do you think that would be a similar response? Uh, that would be hypothetical. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, I got uh, a wide range of responses from from all the uh, from all the coaches. So I have 15 coaches, giving each of them giving four key qualities. So I have a range of qualities that is wide enough <laughs> to consider that. Um, that athletes would probably say uh, many of those qualities. Uh, well, sorry, I think they would be similar. You know. Yeah, yeah. And then you did one for the coaches. So was that was that from the perspective of the sports scientist? Uh, no, no, no. I asked the coaches what they considered would be key qualities of themselves of of oh, okay. coaches. Okay. You know, what do you think uh, a, a coach who who is able to repeatedly help athletes win big medals uh, should be? And again, uh, knowledge of the sport, uh, passion about the sport, passion about helping the athlete succeed, uh, willingness to explore new paths, uh, the art of communication with the athlete, uh, all those were some of the qualities that uh, that could be underlined. Mm-hmm. So one thing that's come up, I mean, I'm sure there's more, but one thing that I picked up on that's come from both them uh, lists that you've mentioned is, is communication. Yes. How, how, is that, how, how is that developed? How is that, how is that taught? Is it taught? Well, it's, it's clear that not every coach uh, or every sports scientist has the same communication skills you know some some coaches like to be more direct some other coaches like to be more educational Uh, you know there are different styles but um, Gennady Turetsky the the, the former coach of uh, of um, Russian swimmer Alex Popov used to say that the art of coaching was the art of communication and I totally agree with that because it's all about uh, the information you get from the athlete and the information that you as a coach or as a sport as a sport scientist uh, transmit to the to the athlete so it's a communication that has to go in both directions and you know the style might be different but the the, the end point has to be the same there has to be a fluidity in that communication so that the message gets through uh, in both directions. So one last thing that I want to ask you about is uh, train load quantification. And there's, there's so much out there now with the technology that's kind of come into the kind of consumer market as well, as well as the obviously elite market. How do, how do coaches, and this is moving back to the endurance side of things, whether it be uh, runners, swimmers, cyclists, how do people sort what's essential from what's definitely not essential? (laughs) Well, uh, there are a lot of toys out there, huh? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, not all of them are useful. So uh, my my philosophy is to only use the minimum necessary that is shown to be effective. So if, if you have a tool that has proven to be effective, um, valid, that is to be measuring what it's supposed to be measuring, uh, and the uh, signal to noise ratio has been measured, and, and, and you know that you are uh, getting valuable data from, from that particular technology, then use it. 
But before you know that that technology is valid and, and uh, reliable and, and effective, uh, I don't think we should be using it just for the, for the reason that we have it or we have access to it. And, and I think uh, not having technology in many cases can only become an excuse not to quantify and not to monitor. And at the end of the day, we can monitor training loads and, and, uh, and fatigue levels and adaptation to training just by simply communicating with the athlete. So it comes back to, to communication as we just talked a minute ago. Um, subjective markers can be as precise and as effective as many objective markers as long as there is some um, confidence and, and, and some, uh, how to say it, some um, experience in the part of the athlete and the part of the coach to, 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 to measure what they think they are measuring. So if an athlete in which you have confidence and an athlete that you trust tells you that they are really tired, it doesn't matter whether you can measure it or not. Uh, then you should pay attention to what the athlete is telling you and, uh, and you should take your decisions and, 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 and decide on the direction of training based on that information that you are getting from the athlete. So yes, there is a lot of uh, technology out there, but I don't think all of it is necessary. We can get very solid and very valid information directly from the athlete. But of course, as a sports scientist, I also need to, um, to emphasize that uh, there are some tools that are useful. And the more information we get, the more options we have to get a clear picture of uh, what's going on and how the athlete is adapting to, uh, to the training program. Mm -hmm. So with, with subjective measures is there do you think there's a um a learning effect on the part of the athlete to actually understand maybe what is a seven out of ten and what is a six out of ten of course of course uh the athlete needs to be educated into the ways to uh to assess uh training load and to to assess adaptation and to assess fatigue levels etc and we all know that there are some athletes who who are better at it than others. Uh, some athletes have a, a good thermometer about uh, the way things are going and some others uh, are not that good. So uh, we need to identify that and we probably need to emphasize uh, our efforts on the athlete who is less good at, at, at assessing the way things are going. Nice. Well, I'm just conscious of time. That's all, and I'm going to. Um, I'm just going to round up very quickly and just say thank you very much for for giving us your insight for the last 35 minutes. It's been uh, it's been excellent. But anyone that wants to uh, keep up to date with what you've got going on, I know you've got a website and you're on social media pretty actively. Do you just want to just um, give us your uh, contact details, etc.? Uh, well, I have a, I have a blog that it's called, uh, www.inigomujica.com. 
Uh, I must say that I haven't been uh, very active lately with the blog, but that's where you can find my books as well if you are interested in in uh, getting uh, any of my books. Uh, then uh, on Twitter, you, I have two accounts, one in, in, in Basque and Spanish and the other one in English. Uh, the one in, in Basque and Spanish is uh, Inigo Mujica and the other one is Inigo Mujica uh, hyphen en for English. And that's it. Yeah. Perfect. Happy days. People can get you uh, get you there. Mm-hmm. Well, thank, thank you very much again for your time. Really appreciate it. And, uh, and we'll speak soon. Yeah, no worries. Thank you. Thank you, mate. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to episode 138 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Inigo. Again, massive apologies for absolutely butchering his name at the start of the episode, but hopefully the quality content uh, has made you forget about that Rick at the start of the episode. So, got some great guests coming up over the next couple of weeks. Uh, A real mix of backgrounds um, for people who are going to come on the podcast for a chat. So I hope you're enjoying uh, the episodes and I would just encourage you to press subscribe on your chosen podcast player so you get instant uh, instant download of all Pacey Performance podcasts as they get uh, as they get released every Thursday morning UK time. So thanks for tuning in again. Thanks for your support and I will speak to you soon.